In the 15th chapter of Acts, we see the Apostle Paul beginning his second missionary journey. He was commissioned by the Jerusalem Council there. They had a great council, figured out a lot of things. The greatest thing they figured out in the council was that it's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Well, he started out uh, going one direction, as you know, but uh, in the middle of that trip, about, two-thirds, uh, about a third of the way through the trip, God had a different plan for him. He had his plan, but God had another plan, so he sent Paul... The Apostle Paul with Silas and Timothy was with him as well into Europe for the first time, into Macedonia. Went to Philippi, and you guys know the story there where he got beaten and locked up and uh, put in the inner sanctum of that jail and singing praises at midnight, and the walls began to shake and the jail doors came open. Philippian jailer thought he was going to die because the prisoners escaped, and they're all still there. That Philippian jailer got saved. They started a church there in Philippi through Lydia. But then he moves on to Thessalonica. And he gets to Thessalonica there, and uh, so the same thing's occurring. He's raveling, he's, he's getting the entire community kind of shaken up because he's preaching Jesus Christ to a bunch of Jewish people. And he's kind of upsetting the apple cart there. And so a little rebellion starts, and so he goes and hides, and they began looking for him, couldn't find him anywhere. But uh, what they said is they're going through the streets. These Jews were saying, hey, those guys that are turning the world upside down have come here too. What an incredible, beautiful statement to be made about somebody professing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were carrying the Jesus Christ into enemy territory. They were carrying the good news of Jesus Christ, letting the world know. They are doing what God had called them to do in the Great Commission. Those men that are turning the world upside down have come here too. You know what God wants out of his church? The same exact thing. He wants you and I, the body of believers here at Beaverdam Baptist Church, to turn this world upside down so it stand truly up, right side up. God has got an incredible message for United Share. He has an incredible mission for United Share. You know what he wants us to do? He wants to love the Great Commission, love the Great Commandment, and be committed to those two things. We've talked about that in the past. He's calling you and I out to be serious about what he's called us to be. You know, this is what Jesus Christ was preparing his apostles and his disciples for when he stood on that mountain and preached the greatest sermon ever preached, a masterpiece. He preached an incredible sermon there. You know, we just showed this video here, Change the Story. You and I have been called out to be the change. Why? Because I've been changed and you've been changed. I'm no longer the person I used to be, and I want to share that. There's something great going on inside my life and inside your life, and God's called you and I out to do it. So Jesus Christ is saying, hey, I want to show you right now what this is all about. I want you to understand what truly being a follower of me is all about. And he turned things upside down. I want you to think about this. Jesus was teaching wisdom contrary to man's wisdom. These things didn't make sense. He was teaching things like, if you want to go up, you've got to go down. The way to exaltation is through humility. What do you mean? The way to be first is to what? To be last. You know these things. This didn't make sense to the ordinary man. It didn't make sense to the way of life out here without Jesus Christ. True strength is found in weakness. What do you mean? How can there be strength and weakness? True riches are found in poverty, bankruptcy of the spirit. Lasting comfort is found in mourning. We've talked about these things. Gladness is found in sadness. When I realize that I'm a sinner saved by grace and I'm sad about the sin I've committed, I'm incredibly sad. We've studied the first two Beatitudes. You remember the first one? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs shall be the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor? Are you kidding me? 
Once again, Jesus Christ turning things upside down. What he's saying here, though, is you and I need to understand that we're bankrupt spiritually without God. We are nothing without God. That's what he's teaching. You need to realize that you don't have a spirit life without God, without Jesus Christ. You're bankrupt. You're destitute without God. God wants you and I to be destitute all the time for him. That's where it all started. It's not by accident that blessed are the poor in spirit is the very first beatitude. Jesus Christ is telling us by the very first beatitude there, this is your entrance into walking like me. This is your entrance into the kingdom of heaven. This is your entrance into coming to a point in your life when you begin doing things for the glory of God. When you begin appropriating into your life the riches of Christ. We're never going to get there until we hit that first point which says, blessed are the poor in spirit. I need to realize my spiritual state without God. The second one, he says, blessed are those who mourn. Remember what it said? And they shall be comforted. What do you mean? How can I be blessed if I mourn? Typically, most, I'm sure most of us that have times of mourning. We've lost a loved one. We've lost something in our life that's precious or we're, we're sad because things aren't going the way we thought they should go. He's saying, no, I'm, that, that, that's important too and, that's impo- and, and, and he's going to give comfort in those areas. But what God is really saying here is, I want you to mourn over your sin. I want you to be in agony over your sin. I want you to be in such a position with your sin because I have told you that you've fallen by my grace by sin and I want you to be worried about that and not worry but concern and mourn over the sin of your life. Not take it lightly. Oh, I sin, no big deal. God wants us to be sick to our stomach, to agonize in all of our being because of the sin in our life. You know, I've thought about those two Beatitudes in my own personal life, preparing for them and reading many, many times. Probably not until this time preparing for the sermon that it really hit me that this isn't where I'm at in my spiritual walk. I want to walk in a greater way. I'm praying that you have the same experience going through these things, realizing that I want to be poor in spirit and I want to mourn over the sin of my life. Well, these things are listed in these orders for a very specific reason because we need to be poor in our spirit then we need to mourn our sin before we can truly be what? The next one, the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I'd have you stand right now, but uh, I just told you the scripture we're going to read this morning. If you want to turn your Bible, it's Matthew 5, 5. It said, blessed are, the more, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray for just a moment. Father, I thank you for your holy word this morning. Father, I thank you, Lord that your word lives. And Father, I pray for every one of us, beginning with the pastor here this morning, that we see these things, Father, and come to understand the truth of what it truly means to be meek. Father, I pray that we'd resonate too in our hearts and our minds, Father, what it means to be spiritually poor and to, to mourn over sin. Father, today, help us, Lord, to understand what it means to be meek. Father, we love you so very much. We thank you once again for first loving us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, you and I, when we hear the word meek, we kind of think of a sissy or we think of somebody that's not really outgoing or not really that strong. That's not what it means at all. In the Bible, meekness, listen very carefully, meekness is not weakness. Meekness, this is the definition of it, meekness is strength under control. You know, one of the pictures that they use to, work, uh, to describe meekness in the Greek is a, a thoroughbred horse that has not been broken yet. There's incredible strength there. You know, have you ever wondered why they calibrate and, and uh, qualify cars by using the word horsepower? You know, horses are strong. It's the strongest thing they knew about back then when they invented the first horse. So they decided they're going to call that horsepower. How much strength does that car have? How much muscle does that car have? We think about strength. 
But the essence of meekness here is a picture of taking one of those huge stallion horses that has got spirit beyond measure, and they break it. They break it so it's controllable. They break it so they can ride the horse. We've seen rodeos before on TV, maybe in person. We've seen the cowboys get up there and break these horses and ride them, get thrown off 15 times before they finally get that horse under control. That's what we're talking about here, the strength under control. I don't know if you guys remember these. There was a number of them on TV for a while, but remember those commercials on TV where they used to have a professional football player on there and all of a sudden his mother would show up and bring Campbell's soup? Watch this for a second. You know, it's a funny little video here, but, um, you know, most of us understand the essence of playing football. Some of you guys have played football in big ways before, but, you know, these guys are strong. They're incredibly fast. They're talented. They, uh, they are taught to play with reckless abandon, which means they basically have no regard for their own personal welfare, and I'm going to hit them as hard as I can, no, no matter the consequences of my body. They're strong. But per the commercial here, all of a sudden the mother shows up. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You know what this is? This is that football player submitting to legitimate authority, his mother. He loved his mom. He realizes the authority that his mom had in his life. He wouldn't be here if it hadn't been for his mom. He wouldn't be the person he is many times for the person that his mother is. So it's that person, that strong, powerful, incredibly hardworking, hard-hitting, hard-living person submitting to his mother. It's the same thing with us. The essence of meekness for you and I is not weakness, it's strength. But it's strength because we have submitted our lives to the appropriate, legitimate authority, God Almighty. You all know as well as I do, there's nobody stronger in this world than God. His power, the power of God in this world changes all things. And so when we demonstrate meekness, it means that I'm submitting, I'm surrendering to legitimate authority. I'm submitting to God. You know, it's isn't it interesting, just like wild horses sometimes, sometimes it takes a number of years before God, the legitimate authority, can break us, you know. And he's going to continue to do that. Why? Because he realizes your best life is going to come when you submit yourself to me. When you realize your spiritual poverty, when you realize your, your, the depth of your sin and you mourn over that, but also when you get in the right, posi or right position of meekness. What does that mean? It means humble. It means gentleness. It means that I'm submitting to a proper authority here. I'm giving my life to God Almighty. I want you to watch this for just a second. Listen to this thought. It's going to be on your screen here in a second. Meekness is who I am in response to the rule of God in my life. Meekness is who I am in response to the rule of God in my life. Ponder that thought for just a second. Am I responsive to God's rule in my life? Am I responsive to what he's asked me to do in this Bible? Am I responsive to the promises he has for me? Am I responsible to all the things that God has directed me to do in my life? Am I truly responsive to those things? Am I living the way God wants me to be? I'm here to tell you the essence of you and I becoming meek and becoming responsive to the rule of God in our life is going to change our life drastically. 
You can get saved, and I'm thankful for that. You genuinely, genuinely get saved. And you realize that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I have this relationship with Jesus Christ now. But it begs the question in the essence of listening to these Beatitudes, what am I doing with that relationship? Am I truly living the relationship God intended me to live? Do I have a close, growing, intimate, wonderful relationship with God? I know He's out there. You know, what am I doing with that? What am I truly doing with my relationship with God? Well, I got one. Well, that's great. And He knows that too if you really have one. Do you know what? He wants so much more. Listen very carefully. He wants more than we can ever give Him. He wants it all. He wants us to live for Him. Why? Because He wants to do something supernatural with you. He wants to do something extraordinary in your life. He wants to give you a level of joy you can't even begin to imagine. The joy of your salvation. He wants to give you peace that past understanding. He wants you to live in His power. He doesn't walk, want you and I as Christians walking around this earth on double-A battery power. He wants Christians to be walking around out here with atomic power. Because we got the God of the universe as our power. Meekness is being like Jesus Christ. That's all it is. The spirit of meekness is the spirit of Christ. When I have the spirit of meekness, it means that I have the spirit of Christ inside me. I'm living for his glory, but I have Christ living inside me, and I'm allowing him to be in charge. I'm allowing him to be the master. Jesus Christ gave himself as a sacrifice to you and I. He lived his life for the glory of God. We know that. Jesus Christ was meek. But in no way was Jesus Christ weak. One thing about this. With a single word, he calmed the seas and the storms. With a single word, he commanded a dead man to walk out of the grave. With a single word, he told Peter, who chopped off the ear of one of the soldiers there in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before he was crucified, he said, hey, if I wanted to right now, I could call 12 legions. That's 12,000 soldiers right now. There might have been a couple dozen people there to arrest him. He could have called 12,000 angels down. John 10, verse 17 and 18, probably one of the most beautiful definitions of meekness, says this, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down. I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus Christ submitted himself to a legitimate authority. His dad, his father, God Almighty. He came to earth 100% man and 100% God. But he parked 100% God on the side. And he lived in this world as 100% man. He felt pain. He wept. He's the first person that ever walked on this earth, though, that did not sin. You know, a lot of times we think about Jesus Christ as a little baby in a manger, and we realize Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God. But Jesus Christ is also the Lion of Judah. Jesus Christ was meek, but he was not weak. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me if just for a second over to Psalms 37. I want you to see a couple of verses here. Psalms 37, this was written by David. And David is recounting the covenant promises of God. He's recounting all of our inheritances that we have in God Almighty. He's using the illustration here of the Israelites entering into the promised land. And the fact that it took them 40 years to do that because they were not, listen very carefully, meek. They weren't meek. Look at verse 11, chapter 37. This is a direct quote here from what we just read in Matthew 5, 5. But the meek shall inherit the earth. This is David talking about it a thousand years before Jesus Christ. 
But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in abundance of peace. Then drop down to 22, and I want you to keep this in mind here about the Israelites not entering into the promised land for 40 years. David says, and he's speaking about that, that inheritance they have from God, the promised land. He says, for, tho- for those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Think about the fact that when they did not go, the 12 spies came back. Do you remember that? Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, let's go, let's go, let's go. Man, it's beautiful. Land of milk and honey. We can do it. Why were they saying that? Because they submitted their lives to the authority of God Almighty. There was ten spies that had not done that, though. They had not submitted their lives to the authority of God. And so it says they're going to be cursed and they should be cut off. Then verse 34, drop down to that in chapter 37 of Psalms. Wait on the Lord and keep his way and he shall exalt to you to inherit the land. He's saying, you keep your ways, you'll see it. What happened to Joshua and Caleb? They were faithful, so what did they get to see? They got to go into the promised land. Forty years later, they had to wait 40 years because of other people's sin, because they hadn't submitted to God's authority. But for 40 years, they were faithful. The time finally came. In the last part of verse 34, Then the wicked are cut off. When the wicked are cut off, shall see it. Joshua and Caleb saw those that were over 20 years old and 40 years all die off. The only ones that were allowed to go into the promised land were the young people. God was trusting those young people to come to know him, and they did. Because when it came time to enter into the promised land, there wasn't any dispute. Joshua said, it's time to go. Let's go. Joshua said, sanctify yourself. They all sanctified themselves. They prepared themselves to go into the new promised land. God promised that allotted portion, that inheritance to all those Israelites. Forty years before they actually entered the land. The inheritance was there. They had an inheritance. So many of those Israelites, they say about two-thirds of the Israelites missed that. They missed the inheritance because they did not have God as their authority in their life. They were not meek. They were thinking for themselves. And Think about that. It's true they can say this. How many times have we made the wrong decision when I'm thinking for myself? You know, we need to trust God. We need to rest in the Lord and let Him be our direction. Let Him be our authority in our life. That inheritance was still there 40 years later. It begs the question in yours and my life. God has given you and I an inheritance too. He tells us that. Ephesians talks about it big time. The riches of Christ, we have that. But how many times have we delayed or even missed those blessings in our life? Because why? Because we have not submitted ourselves to the proper authority. We have not surrendered ourselves to God Almighty. God doesn't want us to pick and choose. Okay, I'll surrender to this and I'll surrender to that. God says, I I want it all. Put your hands in the air. I wanted everything. I want it all. You know, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does that mean? God's talking about the promised land. He's talking about a land here. When we think about the promised land, a lot of times people think, well, that's entering into salvation. No, it's not. That's entering into the riches and the inheritance that God has for those Israelites, for his people. If you want to use the Old Testament illustrations, when they came out of Egypt, that was their salvation. When you and I come out of Egypt by God's hand, by faith, that's our salvation. And the illustration there is the Israelites leaving Egypt. They've been in captivity. They've been in slavery and bondage for all these years, and God delivered them. God delivered you and I out of bondage as well, and out of slavery. Before we have Jesus Christ, we're living in slavery. And God delivers us out of that through Jesus Christ. He used Moses for the Israelites and pulled them out of 
Egypt. He pulls you and I out of that bondage. Well, that's great. We're out of bondage. I mentioned it a moment ago. But what does God really want to do? He wants you to understand that salvation we have in Jesus Christ. But also, he wants you to receive the promises. He wants you to receive the inheritance he has for you. Why? Because when you receive that inheritance that God has for you, you're going to do a much better job bringing glory to him. We can get saved, but what does that mean? It just means that i got fire insurance someday, that I, I know that I have Jesus Christ in my heart. But Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God Almighty are all together saying, okay, now what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? Enter into the promised land. I'm here to tell you this scripture and what we're talking about here and the illustration using the Israelites here breaks my heart because there's too many people that have gotten saved and they're still living in the desert. They haven't crossed over the Jordan River yet. Why? Because we have not let God be our ultimate authority. We haven't submitted to that godly authority. God has made these promises. Listen very carefully. He's already made the provision for us. He'd already made the provision for the Israelites in, in, in Cana there, in the promised land. It was ready to go. Guess what happened 40 years later? They went into Canaan just like they could have 40 years before that. God had already given them the victory. Already said, hey, right before they took down, Jericho was their first military objective they had to take down. A huge fortified position. 12-foot cement stone walls. I mean, this was a fortified position of all fortified positions back there. These Canaanites have been working on that position for decades. And from the common perspective of God's vision, you know, how do we take that down? They had a big Israel army, and they were planning on having a brutal war. God said, wait a minute. I've already given you Jericho and its mighty men of valor. I've already given it to you. He told this to Joshua. He said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go out there, take the whole nation of Israel, and walk around it once. And the second day, walk around it again. On the third day, the fourth day, the fifth day, the sixth day, walk around it again. On the seventh day, I want you to walk around it seven times. And the seventh time, I want you to blow the trumpets and shout. What happened? The walls came tumbling down. God had already given them their inheritance. He already had it ready. He'd already made provisions. When you and arrive, God's saying at our, at our time of inheritance, he says, I've already made it ready. I've been preparing it for you. I've already got these things for you. I've already given you Jericho. I'm, a, I'm supposing most of you have a bank you use on a regular basis. Maybe you have two. Imagine for just a moment, though, that uh, you happen to use, and this isn't a free advertisement, but uh, maybe you're using Wachovia. I know we've got a fellow that works with Wachovia. I'm sorry, Wells Fargo now. Imagine you go to SunTrust. You, your bank is Wells Fargo. And you pull out one of your little withdrawal slips from Wells Fargo and walk into SunTrust. Walk up to the counter and say, hey, here's a withdrawal slip. I want to withdraw this money from my Wells Fargo account. They go look at that account and say, hey, you don't have any money here. Your allotment's not here. What, what you need here, you need to go to your own bank. You need to go to the proper person or the proper authority to get what you want here. There's so many times in our life when we go to the wrong authority. We go to the wrong person for something that we think we need in our life. You know what's very sad? Sometimes we go to ourselves. What a mistake that is. We need to go to God first. God first. Submit myself to God Almighty. Or imagine this. My wife won't let me carry my keys anymore in my pocket while I preach because I jingle them. But I imagine many of you got a big ball of keys in there. I think most of us carry a number of keys in your foot. And, you know, my, my lifetime pursuit has been to carry as few as possible. But um, you got a bunch of keys in your, on your keychain. 
If you were to drive over to my house this afternoon, your precious family, why don't we go check out the pastor's house? Let's go look inside his house. And you pull out your little keys when you get there and walk up on the porch and put your key in the door. Guess what? It's not going to work. Or, I wonder if the pastor wanted to come over and see what kind of homemaker you are. And he and his wife drove over to your house this afternoon and pulled out my keys and wanted to walk in your house. Key wouldn't work. Those keys are crafted in a very special way. They're crafted for a very specific walk, okay? God has crafted us. God has built us for a very special purpose. But he's also crafted us in such a special way that there's only one key that's going to open our life to the things that Jesus Christ died for. It's that key of Jesus Christ and God Almighty. We can use all kinds of keys all through life, and many of us do. Many of us before we got saved were looking in every way. I met so many men and so many women in my life that were like that before they got saved. You know, I'm looking for contentment and happiness and purpose in my life. They were trying every key out there in the world except the right one. I don't know about you, but uh, I think truly one of the greatest experiences in life, it's another little icon you're going to see on the screen here, Mitch, is to watch God work things out. You ever had one of those moments in your life and just praying and praying and wondering how it's going to go and how's this going to turn out? And, you know, but what an incredible experience to see God work things out that you thought weren't going to work out right. I can only imagine those Israelites sitting in the desert all those years, 40 years, wondering, are we ever really going to go to the promised land? I know the rumor is, and I heard that somebody told Moses that, you know, the, everybody over the age of 20 is going to die before you go in there. Is that truly really? I imagine they're all sitting there kind of trying to wonder out, what's going to happen? We're looking at Jesus Christ's greatest sermon. One of the great verses, there's many of them in his sermon here, is Matthew 6.33. It says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and what? All these things shall be added unto you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That promise only goes to those that have submitted themselves to the authority of God. Seek ye first God. Seek ye first God. It's not by accident Jesus Christ put that in there after all these Beatitudes back in chapter 5. This experience belongs to those that submit to themselves to God first. Forty years the Israelites sat in that desert. They had the wrong priorities. They finally entered into the promised land. The inheritance was still there. God's provision was still there. Listen very, 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 very carefully this morning. God has made provision for you and I in our lives. He's made provisions for peace. He's made provisions for you and I to have relationships that grow and increase by day. He's made provisions for us to be married in a very blissful way. He's made provisions for us to help raise our children in a proper way. He's made provisions for you and I to live a proper way. He's made provisions for you and I to make a difference in this world. He's made provisions for you and I to do something supernatural in our life. But it all comes about when we surrender ourselves and submit ourselves to his authority. God's provision is still there. You know what all God's waiting for is for you and I to cross that Jordan River. He's waiting for you and I to step into that promised land. And that comes when we surrender our will to his will. Numbers 12, uh, scripture in the Bible, just previous to what we were talking about here. God said that Moses was more meek than any other man that stood on the earth at that time. More meek, more gentle, more humble. 
There had been dissension with Miriam and Aaron. They were jealous of him, but also they're upset that he married a Cushite. He married an African-American lady, a black person. And they were upset about that. How sad. They stirred up a rebellion about all that. God said, you know what? Moses, I'm going to handle this. The point I want you to see here, Moses being the most meek man in the world at that time, Moses wasn't weak. Remember what he did? He went and confronted Pharaoh. He brought eight plagues upon the nation of Israel, the nation of Egypt. He stood there in the Red Sea between the Red Sea and the army of Egypt and part of the Red Seas with God's strength. Moses was not weak. But when we are meek, when we surrender to God's authority, you know what he does? He takes care of us. He blesses us. He wins the battles for us. How do I become meek? It starts with the first two Beatitudes. We need to realize truly in our life that I'm spiritually destitute, spiritually bankrupt without God. Then I need to mourn my sin. Then that's going to make us meek and humble before God. It's going to make us surrender and submit to the authority of God. We've shared with you, the body of believers here at Beaverdam Baptist Church, that this year we want to change the story. We want to be the change individually and collectively as a church. I believe that we're living in a time, a spiritual time, that we have an incredible opportunity to make a difference. I believe with all my heart that God would use this church to change this state, this nation, this world. I believe that. Why? Because we got people here sold out for Jesus Christ. Got people here that have a desire just like that to make a difference. How's that going to happen though? How are we going to get to the point of the church here when we truly begin making a difference? We've seen some things in the past, but I believe our best days are still ahead. I really do. I think God wants to do something great. I want to give you in conclusion here this morning a little bit of an analogy and ask you a question. Do you believe a church, believe a body of Christians is more like a cruise ship or more like a battleship? Is it more like a cruise ship or more like a battleship? There's been a number of people who've written sermons on this. I've mentioned it before in your tube. But I want to draw a little analogy here this morning. Maybe get us thinking about the Beatitudes, first of all, but also, how am I going to take these Beatitudes in my life? How am I going to apply them to my life and become closer to Christ? But also, how am I going to let that be an effect on other people? How am I going to be used of God to change other people's lives or help them come to know the same things I know and receive the benefits I have from being a Christian? When we think of ourselves as a battleship, we realize that we're at war. We think of ourselves as a cruise ship, we're on vacation. Amy and I have been on those vacations, they're very nice. When we're on a battleship, it's all about God. When we're on a cruise ship, it's all about myself. When we're on a battleship, we're part of the crew. When I'm on a cruise ship, I'm one of the consumers. When I'm on a battleship, God is the faithful commander. When I'm on a cruise ship, God is more like the entertainment director. 
The cruise ship docks in wartime. The battleship sets sail for the battle zone. We have an unprecedented opportunity as a body of believers in this nation that so desperately needs to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. I can't watch TV for any more than about 10 minutes at a time. It's too discouraging. There are so many lost people in our sphere of influence, so many people in this world that need to hear the joy of Jesus Christ and see it. The greatest testimony that any of us have is our life. How will I live my life? How is it that you seem to be so excited about life every day? How is it that you seem to just have a bounce to your step every day? How is it that I never hear you discouraged or defeated? We all have those experiences, but we don't express them. Why? Because we want to be an encourager. We want to be an edifier. We have an unbelievable opportunity sitting right here in Beaverdam. You know what? You might think Beaverdam is kind of an obscure little place out here in the middle of the country. But guess what? 715 will get you anywhere you want to go in the whole world. Okay? Go out of the parking lot, turn left or right, and you can go anywhere you want in the world. You may have to take an airplane or a boat or something like that, but it'll get you there. We can go everywhere in the whole world from this little church out in the middle country. And God has always said that he wants to use the little things in this world to confound the big things. Use the weak things to confound the strong. We have a precious body of believers here at Beaverdam Baptist Church. And I know that God wants to use us. I know you want to be used, too. You want to see what God might do with my life as I commit to him. God's calling you and I, just like that battleship illustration, to deploy the good news of Jesus Christ around this world. Everywhere I go. My heart's desire would be this year that every single one of us would have the experience of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with somebody and see them receive it. It may take you sharing the gospel to 20 people before the first one says yes, but you know what you're doing for those first 19? You're planting the seeds. Maybe somebody else will come along another month from now and plant the seed again. And another month after that, somebody else plant the seed in that same person. Maybe after a year or two, I had a friend that was in the jail ministry years ago, went for 26 years, at least two times a month, sometimes three or four times a month, for 26 years, and that man in jail, in, in for a lifetime, finally received Jesus Christ after 26 years. Never gave up on the guy. Go over the time and kind of share the Bible and share with them and talk to them about Jesus Christ. Would you like to receive Jesus Christ? Well, I'm not ready. 26 years. We don't know.